Welcome to Intrepid Media, the show for the business professional. Here, we're going to talk about business topics such as leadership, sales, marketing, HR, innovation, strategy, and technology. But we're also going to riff about lifestyle too and help you look better, feel better, and live better. This show is everything the modern business professional needs, from the C-level executive to the millennial. So let's get on with the show. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Business. I am your host, Todd Schnick. This promises to be a pretty interesting conversation. A lot of conversation on this show about how to be entrepreneurial. And I'll be perfectly frank, a lot of the context around those conversations are for small techie startup companies. And so I think it's very important to understand that we can and we should apply entrepreneurial thinking to virtually every organization, even traditional more older companies too. So should be a very interesting conversation. I'm joined this morning by Jim DeWald. He is the dean of the Haskane School of Business and the author of a new book that we're here to talk about called Achieving Longevity. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks, Todd. Great to be on. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks for carving out some time to join me. I know you were busy, gentlemen, so I appreciate you making time. Uh, Before we get to our conversation around the book Achieving Longevity, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and do uh, share a quick overview of the Haskane School of Business. Sure. Real quickly, I'm I'm not sort of your regular standard uh, academic. In fact, I had, a, I guess, a pretty successful business career before I came into academics. I actually started my Ph.D. program at the ripe age of 44 and finished just before my 50th birthday. So I bring a lot of experience to the role. And I'll tell you a little bit about the Haskane School. We have uh, roughly 3,500 students in uh, Bachelor of Commerce and MBA and PhD programs. We're in the city of Calgary in Alberta, Canada. It's it's a great school. We have very strong faculty, and uh, we're ranked in the FT. So uh, we're pleased about all that. And one thing that struck us is all of this interest in entrepreneurship, and um, and uh, I think it's really driven by a sense that we need to adapt and we need to be ready for change. The thing that really got me mostly from business before I came into academics was why aren't firms more entrepreneurial? And really the challenges that a startup firm has, uh, they have great ideas, but they don't have the people, they don't have the money, they don't have the physical assets, they don't even have the customers, suppliers, links with governments, networks, that sort of thing. All of these things that existing companies have. So if we could actually crack the the problem of firms not being able to think entrepreneurially, we could have a watershed moment and really see some innovative things happening in our economies. Jim, is it as simple as, look, it's it's not a surprise to think, all right, so a small organization, a startup, uh, it's, that's fresh, it's new, probably got a lot of young talent. We always say, well, they're lucky because they, they, they can be agile. They can make quick changes. They can make quick decisions. And, and maybe they're better utilizers of the new modern technology. Who knows? There's a million explanations for it. How did the larger organizations, how did the, the older companies and, and more established firms, how did they lose this entrepreneurial spirit? I mean, I, it, it struggles, it boggles my mind to understand how at one point that organization probably was fresh and entrepreneurial. How did they lose that spirit? 
Yeah, you absolutely nailed it. So what I talk about in the book is we're used to sort of a, what we what I call a stage one, stage two thinking. Stage one, firms very uncertain, very unstable, very risky, but very nimble and able to move forward with ideas. And it goes along with that until it gets some kind of a big hit and then jumps up to stage two, which is you know, more reliable sales, a product that people or a service that people understand, and things are going well, and the firm is, let's quote-unquote, successful. The CEOs then think, well, great, now maybe we need a corporate jet. You know, life really changes quite radically. The truth is that firms, the great firms, and that's why I called it achieving longevity, the firms that have been around for hundreds of years, they recognize that the secret to success is actually failure, allowing failure and learning from failure, so making mistakes but learning from it and building off of it. And the secret to, uh, or not the secret, but the other side of it is failure comes actually from success and the breeding of complacency that comes with success. So you've got to get out of that one stage one, stage two thinking to always recognize that the firm's always at risk. It could fail. And if we're not ahead of the game in terms of the next great thing, we will fall down. Is part of that because then there's stockholders and there's investors who expect performance. And so the, the focus becomes more towards that than it is innovating or, or, or focusing on the customer? Absolutely. You know, public companies are under tremendous pressure right now for quarterly earnings. And that's a very short-term thinking. And when we're going into some major new technologies, such as the genome research, nanotechnologies, machine learning for computers, it's no time for firms to be spending all their time on what was the last quarter like. They have to be thinking, where are we going to be situated in five, ten years from now? Well, maybe it's helpful if you were to share what Jim DeWald would, how you would define entrepreneurialism. I, I think there's a lot of people that think that, well, that's a, that's a young tech startup. That, that's, it's not a hundred year old firm. I mean, what, what is, the, and I think that's part of the problem. If you ask 10 people to define what an entrepreneur is, you're probably going to get 10 different answers. And therein lies some opportunity too. But I, I think it's also important. So define entrepreneurialism, but also say this isn't, I, I don't think you're talking about the organization as a whole. You are, but shouldn't we think about departments and teams and, and frankly, shouldn't even individuals be thinking entrepreneurially? And what's the notion of this term of an intrapreneur? The definition of entrepreneurship is is all about adding value. So we're we're really trying to move away from identifying entrepreneurship as being startup or as starting a company or as structural or business plans, that sort of thing. No, entrepreneurship is just about adding value that could be financial value, could be social value, could be environmental value. But it's a process, a mechanism that allows value to be added and captured, ideally or usually within a firm. So that then opens up the channels that entrepreneurship can happen at a startup or in the term that I use in the book, which is a well-known term, is corporate entrepreneurship. So it can happen within corporations. There is social entrepreneurship. There's lots of different ways to refine what you mean by the added value out of entrepreneurship. In terms of the added value from a corporate standpoint, yeah, you know, it's unlikely that the entire firm would be very entrepreneurial because that would be a little risky. And you never want to bet the farm with any new idea. 
But you got to look at the other side of it is firms as they grow bigger can become very staid and become very much the experts of what I call the one no response. So somebody has an idea, they run it up the flagpole. A lot of uh, big corporations, it just takes one person. It could be a person in accounting that says, no, I don't think that'll work. The whole thing collapses. And that's really the culture that we have to attack and say that's unacceptable. If somebody has an idea, we have to give them the runway to give it a shot. And we have to recognize that it might not work. But so what? Let's say you're a $10 billion organization and you spend $3 million on this idea. It's not going to bring down the firm, but it could have led you towards the next great thing. So we need organizations to recognize that and to be prepared. And I'm just going to move into another area that the reason why I think it's so critical today. When I ask people about do we live in fast-changing times, I always get a 100% response, yes, yes. And then I ask, well, do you think this is the fastest changing of all time? And they say, yes, yes. But here's the evidence. Here's the real evidence. You and I drive roughly the same type vehicles, same speed, same roads. We get, in fact, I actually get woken up by an alarm radio phone that I bought like in 1970. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we get up, we have our showers, we uh, we pick up our coffee. Really, so much has not changed. When you look at somebody who was born in 1870, there was no cars. Everybody got around by the bicycle was a big invention, but your horse and buggy. There's no central heating. There's no central plumbing. That was a completely different time. Like winter was a serious thing then. It was life and death. And when you packed a lunch to go into town, you needn't a lunch because it was going to take you all day to get there. Those people grew up and they saw a real change. Airplanes in the air, the car being democratized through Henry Ford so on and so forth. But somebody who grew up, who was born 70 years later in 1940, really from the age of 10 or so, there hasn't been that much changed. And you could say, well, hold on, Jim, the computer came along in the internet. But here's what happens when you get stuck and this is the next level up of this paradigm of things are good, so don't change them. We took the brilliance of computing technology and ones and zeros in the internet we spent the last 40 years trying to pound it into what? A telephone, because we understand the telephone. I mean, we're missing so many opportunities. Now people are starting to say, well, wait a minute. Computers can think on their own. Automation, we could all be going in automated cars around town. And in fact, instead of cars being parked for 96% of their time, they could all be operating for 96% of their time. Genome research is allowing us to maybe be able to heal ourselves nanotechnology is changing the strength of material. I have a feeling that over the next 20, 30 years, we'll see massive change and our organizations are simply not ready for it. Hmm. Gosh, fascinating uh, dialogue there. uh, Lots to ponder there. So we'll go to a quick break. So Jim DeWald and I will return after the short break. We'll be right back. Think Next, Act Now is an entrepreneurial movement. It is a teaching platform, a coaching forum that emphasizes action, And the link between thought and action makes a difference in the outcome you determine or the result that's determined for you. When you see, seize, and create opportunity for yourself, you take a big step toward becoming recession-proof and changing your life. If you are determined to make a change in your life, think next, act now, 
will provide the essential toolkit to move your life forward. Only realized potential cashes the check of reality. Now is the time to realize your potential. Think next, act now, and go always forward. To learn more, go to BillWoodich.com. That's BillWoodich.com. All right, I am back with Jim DeWald, the Dean of the Haskane School of Business and the author of a new book called Achieving Longevity, How Great Firms Prosper Through Entrepreneurial Thinking. So covered a lot in that first segment. Uh, I think another area that I think there is some confusion on is I, I think you would say that there's too much focus and attention paid to trying to be more efficient. I mean, how big of a problem is that? Yeah, I think it's a real problem. And the reason why you need slack in an organization, uh, slack in terms of people, thinking ability, time, and money to be able to be innovative and entrepreneurial. You can't, you know, it, it won't just come out of thin air. People actually have to set aside time. So here's an example, 3M, where they uh, famously set aside 15% of everyone's workday or work week just to tinker and come up with new ideas. Google does this as well. So the firms that really are entrepreneurial and innovative, they wouldn't be the most efficient firms in the world. Efficient firms, you, you've got the stopwatch, you're checking every second what everyone's doing, and that just drives you down a completely different road. Yeah, but I, look, it's not something you should ignore, but I think there's too much focus on it. And I think it's obvious when you think on it that that, that just naturally creates an environment that, that is less entrepreneurial, right? Right. And I think you have to make a distinction between the term efficiency and the term waste. So you certainly don't want waste in any organization. Right, right. So corporate entrepreneurship, uh, you touched on that a few minutes ago, the, the different kinds of, of entrepreneurship. But, but go deep on that because I think that's it's key to understand that that's where there's, I think, tremendous opportunity as I record this, I'm in a high rise in downtown Chicago, and I'm looking at all of these high rises full of these corporations. There's probably no entrepreneurship going on in most of these buildings. What is it? And then how do you how do you begin to change the culture, change the mindset for for improved corporate entrepreneurship? Yeah, so I'm going to come from two different angles on that. One in terms of the individual, and this is where like our school, a business school, becomes very very important because. The root of being entrepreneurial is uh, what we call entrepreneurial thinking. And um, most business schools, in fact, it might be even safe to say all business schools and most universities focus on something called critical thinking. And critical thinking isn't really being just critical. It's saying, let's take an analytical approach to a problem. And uh, the steps are, number one, clearly identify what the problem is. Number two, clearly identify alternative solutions to that problem. And then number three, analyze those proposed solutions to find out the one that best fits with your organization, your skill set, and the problem that you're trying to fix. Select that and then uh, implement. Now, that's a very reductionist process. It relies on what you know already. It doesn't add any new information. It's just starting with three options, let's say, and breaking it down to one and then moving forward. That will never lead you down a path of expansion and new value and real entrepreneurship. In entrepreneurial thinking, we focus a lot more on, well, what's an idea we could take maybe from a different organization or a different industry or a different time, let's say. And let's really think outside of the box 
And so I'm going to introduce a term that we use called bricolage. And bricolage is all about, well, let's visualize the answer. And in fact, we'll have constrained resources. Because uh, although I was saying before an efficient organization gets trimmed right down with zero slack, you don't want to be reckless either and just throwing a whole bunch of money at problems. So here's an example I'm going to give you because it's quite vivid. In the movie Apollo 13, the astronauts are up in the air and they're running out of oxygen because their filtering system isn't working. The NASA people get a bunch of engineers around a room and they, they sit them around the table and very dramatically, this fellow throws down all these parts on the table and says, look, this is what they have in the space shuttle. They have to get this round tube and put it into this square hole, and they have to do it uh, in the next hour or they're all going to die. So you guys come up with a way that this can happen. So they have to really think outside the box. They can't use the protocols that they have, and they can't say, you know, we need this tool or that tool. No, this is all you have. And that's where great you know, really creative ideas come from. I'll give you another example of bricolage. You may recall this fellow named MacGyver. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So MacGyver will take, you know, some strand out of a carpet and a little piece of wood out of the wall or something. And then, of course, you need a little bit of duct tape and voila, you've got a transistor radio or bomb, whatever you need. And uh, that is bricolage. It's saying, I know what I need and all I've got is what's around me. Can I make that work? And when you do that in teams, amazing things happen. Well, I think of, uh, you reminded me of a quote from Churchill who said, uh, we have no money, thus we shall be forced to think. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and I love the Apollo 13 story. I I mean, I named my company Intrepid after the lander from Apollo 12. So I'm I'm very familiar with that story. And that's a great example of, of an exercise that you could put it to a team and say, here are the resources that you have, and they're limited. Create something out of that, and that's that's fascinating. It, it, I think the biggest victim of a lack of entrepreneurial thinking, in, in a certainly in, a, in an aging or a long firm, a big company or a large enterprise, is the loss of, of innovative thinking and, and creativity. I mean, how do you foster an environment that that enables innovation and 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 where does that come from you you contend that it doesn't necessarily come from the quote creative types it can all be process driven and i guess a simple thing is brainstorming but a key is making sure that you have people who look at the same problem from different perspectives and an, an opportunity for them to share that so that it can broaden out each person's thought process on how to address uh, an opportunity or problem that's before them. Well, so so someone listening to this and they say, gosh, my organization is anything but entrepreneurial. How do you begin to turn that around? I mean, how, what's the, that's a really hard question to ask, and, 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 and I suspect you'll be able to scratch the surface on it a bit. But And I don't even know from what perspective I'm asking from, from the CEO or from someone who's lower in the organization. But how does, how does an organization begin this major shift? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a dramatic change in how they think and how they operate. Yeah, and you're so right, Todd. And it takes time. You know, if someone feels... You know, I'm going to set a three-month goal or a six-month goal or even a one-year goal of transforming the organization culture. You know, they're kind of dreaming. But a key things are the messages that leaders send. So will a leader allow, like what happens if you make a mistake? Will you, is your job at risk? Like what is going to happen? 
in entrepreneurial cultures, that will be an opportunity for people to say, okay, well, that happened. So what can we learn from that? How can we take this different direction? And maybe there's something that we can salvage from there and move forward. It's all a very positive, we can, we can do better next time approach. So leaders need to take some chances, need to see that they can fail. And over time, the organization has to build sort of an inventory of stories, some heritage that people understand. Yeah, you know, this happened at this time and, and uh, look, it took us into this product line. And uh, so you can't do it overnight. And I give a lot more detail in the book. But just be patient and go one step at a time and you'll get there. What kind of resistance are, are you going to find in an organization towards corporate entrepreneurship? I think you outlined three primary areas of resistance, but, but walk us through those. And then, frankly, how do you tackle that? Yeah, well, I, I grouped the uh, resistance in the three areas, one being resistance within the firm. So often uh, individuals are very apprehensive about change and always feel somehow it's going to harm them. So you've got to deal with that. And then there's the barriers from uh, suppliers. So quite often suppliers are also in a very fixed mindset and they don't see new ways of doing things. And then the third is resistance from customers, which Clayton Christensen and the Innovator's Dilemma talked tremendously about that, that, you know, customers are often the last ones to come on board with something that's truly innovative. The thing is, when they flip, they flip fast and they'll all go together. To be honest, the best firms will have a selection of suppliers. They won't just rely on one, and they'll often bring in a smaller player or a new player when they're when they're producing a new product or a new service because that the the supplier then is really energized to try and do something special. Whereas the the standard supplier and um, this is kind of harsh, but the reality is uh, they'll be more interested in protecting what they have. Right. Within the firm, it's much more complex. You've got to go through lots of steps, and uh, you need uh, champions within your organization. It can't always, uh, in fact, it can rarely change, can come from the top down. On these sorts of things, it becomes very political, very resource-driven, and people having their own uh, little fiefdoms. So, uh, there's a lot more thought on the internal one, and I walked through a couple of frameworks that, that can help with that. So the whole goal here is to achieve longevity. So in in the context of this book and, and your thinking, what is longevity and why does it matter? Well, the research is pretty startling. On average, operating firms last only five years. So 50% are gone within five years of being incorporated. And I'm not talking about holding companies or anything. I'm talking about actual operating companies. And then the 10 years after that, another 50% drop off. So you're only left with 25%. But on the other side, there's firms like Honda, like IBM, that have lasted 100 years or more. And they are very innovative entrepreneurial firms. And so it's further evidence that if you want, you know, if you're, a corporate leader and you say I want this company to last long beyond me 50 maybe 100 years you have to have an entrepreneurial culture within it I think the evidence is there and uh, as we go forward into more changing times that's just going to become more and more important absolutely so before I let you go walk us through the actual organization and structure of the book itself 
Well, the book starts by talking about this idea that uh, we think we're in fast-changing times, but we actually aren't. Even when we've been through this pretty steady state over the last 70, 80 years, still we see that the entrepreneurial firms are actually the ones that survive and move on. 29 of the 30 firms in the Dow Jones 30 have changed their product line completely over their lifetime. And then I move into, well, you know, how can you do this with your organization? How can you build the culture and how can you adopt entrepreneurial thinking? And then finally, I address the uh, barriers in the in the last chapter of the barriers within the firm and uh, with suppliers and with customers. Outstanding. Well, Jim, I hate to say it, running low on time. We barely scratch the surface. There's so much more we could go into and go deep in a lot of this stuff. It's a shame we don't have more time. Before I let you go, how can people contact you should uh, they want to learn more? And where can they learn more about the Haskane School of Business? And most importantly, where can they get their hands on a copy of Achieving Longevity? Firstly, uh, the Haskane School is at the University of Calgary, so haskane.ucalgary.ca is our website. And the uh, book is available on Amazon, on all of the main uh, book outlets. It's just coming out right now, so it's timely. And as well, uh, you can go to the website on the book, which is at the University of Toronto Press, so utpress backslash Achieving Longevity. Jim DeWald, the author of Achieving Longevity, How Great Firms Prosper Through Entrepreneurial Thinking and the Dean of the Haskane School of Business. Jim, a real pleasure to spend some time with you. Thanks again for stopping by. Thanks, Todd. All right. That's all the time we have for today. Again, on behalf of my guest, Jim DeWald, I am Todd Schnick. We'll see you soon on Intrepid Business. Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to intrepidmailinglist.com. That's intrepidmailinglist.com and sign up. You can also find us at intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.